This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson, owner of TudorsDynasty.com, and welcome to the extended series on Queen Elizabeth Month on the show. As I've stated on Facebook, I've been having a difficult time finding redeeming qualities in the adult Elizabeth or Queen Elizabeth. The purpose of these episodes was not only to share with all of you, but to open my own eyes on the woman, the queen, that I've had little interest in. My interest has always been with her father, Henry VIII. I've always been more interested in Elizabeth's childhood than her reign. This series on her is a selfish one, one that will show me something about the adult Elizabeth that I was unaware of. Now let's talk a bit about my show. If you're new to my podcast and found me on iTunes, you're missing out on a bunch of episodes that came before I integrated with iTunes. If you're interested in hearing all of them, you can go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty and click on post. I also have a link to them on tutorsdynasty.com in the menu. If you find me on iTunes, I'd also love to see some more five-star ratings and comments there. The more reviews and ratings, the higher I will be on recommendation lists for other tutor lovers. My podcast originates on Patreon, and I do things a little different than most podcasters. My episodes tend to be 30 minutes or less, while most podcasters do an hour. If you're like me, you don't have time to listen to an hour podcast. It's because of this that I've chosen to do a shorter one. However, when I do a large topic like Queen Elizabeth I, I end up having way more episodes than a standard podcaster would. I hope you don't mind. It also takes a really long time to research, write, record, and edit a 30-minute episode. And I have a whole new respect for other podcasters who do longer ones. Speaking of Patreon, I need to take a moment to thank my existing patrons, for without your support, I wouldn't be able to continue with these podcasts. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to become a patron on my podcast, you can go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com and click become a patron. For as little as a dollar per month, you can show your support. Thank you to Jessica, Kim, Kathy, Katie, Rachel H., Diane, Joy, Lynn, James, Rachel D., Lacey, Angela, Azaria, Alithia, Anne, Maria, Cynthia, Lisa, Stacy, Nora, Wendy, Frankie, Ramey, Catherine, Carrie, Jen, Heather, Cheryl, Mary, Nicole, Tanya, Astra, and Melissa. It's not only my podcast that you support, but also my website, TutorsDynasty.com, which started in June of 2015 as Tutors Weekly. This was a paperly account where I was able to share all kinds of tutor-related topics with those who found my page. A few months into it, I realized that I had ideas of articles I wished to write, but I never considered myself a writer. I really only knew that I loved the Tudor era. With the support and encouragement of my husband, he convinced me to start writing. He said, the more you write, the better you'll get. 
I wasn't sure if he was right, and I was terrified of the reaction that I would receive from social media, but I did it anyway. And I was pleasantly surprised by the response I received. At the beginning, there weren't critics who picked apart my articles or scolded me for bad grammar. That didn't come until later, when more people discovered my site. In 2016, I decided to switch my name from Tudor's Weekly to Tudor's Dynasty. I was posting articles way more than once a week, and using Dynasty seemed to convey more of what I was doing. It stuck, and now I'm known as such on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook. But let's be honest, if you want to stay in contact with me and see more social media posts, it'll be on Facebook. Lately on Facebook, I've decided to focus on one person each month. In November, I focused on Katherine Howard. In December, it was Queen Elizabeth. And this month, I've chosen Catherine of Aragon. When I focus on one person, that does not mean that it is all you will find in my feed. But you will find portraits, artifacts, articles, and podcasts on the subjects. I've decided to start doing this as a way to build more awareness about some of these amazing women. In the following months, we'll be focusing on Mary, Queen of Scots, Catherine Parr, and Lady Jane Grey. Now, when you become a patron of the show, all the money received from people like you go right back into it and into the cost of running my website and research materials, including subscriptions to those hidden or hard-to-find documents. Believe it or not, I do have a full-time job, and this is something that I do in my ever-decreasing downtime. Creating a podcast can easily take 15 hours a week. But with all of your support, I can continue doing this. So thank you. With all that out of the way, let's get on with the show. Sit back, relax, close your eyes, and prepare to be transported back in time to the life of Elizabeth Tudor, Queen of England. In the early morning hours of the 17th of November, 1558, Queen Mary I died. Elizabeth was now Queen of England. Elizabeth had been sitting outside in the chilly November weather, reading a book under an old oak tree when she was approached by men. Upon being informed of her sister's death, it was reported that Elizabeth knelt to the ground and in exquisite Latin said, This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. However, author David Starkey states that it's a nice story, but it's not based on a contemporary report, but by a man 70 years after the event. With that being said, we have no idea what was actually said, or if she said anything at all. To be honest, I've always thought that the statement wasn't sensitive to her sister's life. Regardless of how their relationship ended, Mary was her sister. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. I mean, think about it. In London, after it became public knowledge that the Queen was dead, all the churches performed Te Diem. They were celebrating the accession of Elizabeth. Not since the accession of Henry VI in 1422 was the transition of power so seamless. This may be because it was as Elizabeth had planned. Upon hearing about her sister's inevitable death, Elizabeth sent Sir Nicholas Throckmorton to London to be her witness. Elizabeth feared being prematurely informed of Mary's death. When Throckmorton officially heard that Mary was dead and had her black enameled engagement ring in hand, he quickly rode back to Hatfield to inform Elizabeth. His trip was roughly 20 miles and probably took about two to four hours. 
after Mary's death, it was proclaimed that there would be three days of mourning for the late queen. During this time, there was no set amount of time for mourning. However, three days seems rather short to mourn a former monarch and a sister. When the mourning period concluded, Elizabeth spoke to the men who had fled to Hatfield when the death of the queen was imminent. These men knew that soon Elizabeth would be the new queen and wished to show their support. They understood that being there at the beginning could benefit them greatly. So many men fled to Hatfield that lodgings in the area were scarcely available for them. In the meantime, Elizabeth met privately with individual counselors, including William Cecil. To Cecil, Elizabeth was quoted as saying, I give you this charge, that you shall be on my privy council and content yourself to take pains for me and my realm. This judgment I have of you, that you will not be corrupted with any manner of gift, and that you will be faithful to the state and without respect of my private will. You will give me that counsel that you think best, and if you shall know anything necessary to be declared to me of secrecy, you shall show it to myself only." And assure yourself that I will not fail to keep taciturnity therein, and therefore herewith I charge you. Elizabeth was building her allies, her inner circle of friends. She was aware that in order to be a successful monarch, she needed people close to her that she could trust. The following day, Elizabeth met informally again with the counselors, and this time they discussed her royal household. It was that day that it was decided that Robert Dudley would be appointed her Master of Horse. Filling of this post was most important if she was to travel to London to form her court. After creating her Privy Council, the most important thing was to put her chamber in order. I'm going to quote David Starkey here. Quote, the chamber was the name given to the household above stairs. It dealt with the public ceremony of the court as opposed to the personal body service of the privy lodgings. End quote. Positions at court were normally valued by closeness to the monarch, but with a female ruler, most of the servants of the body were women. This meant that posts in the chamber were most valuable to men. The competition for these positions would have been insane. In this matter, William Cecil's notes were brief. He wrote that Lord William Howard would replace Lord Hastings as departmental head of the chamber. Howard had been deputy of Calais under Edward VI and a counselor with Queen Mary, but had been a staunch supporter and friend to Elizabeth during Wyatt's rebellion. He was also her kin, her great uncle. Then there was Elizabeth's former jailer, Henry Benningfield, who was removed as vice chamberlain and replaced with Sir Edward Rogers, a man who had been a co-conspirator with Wyatt. We already know that Robert Dudley was named Master of Horse, but did you know that the new vice chamberlain, Rogers, had been imprisoned in the tower at the same time as both Dudley and Elizabeth? Dudley's position was quite possibly the closest male position to the queen's person, that is, at least outside the confines of the palace when the queen traveled or went on hunts. Dudley definitely understood the benefit of his position. Less than a third of Queen Mary's large council remained after Elizabeth concluded her choices. Elizabeth made it clear that the changes and job cuts that she had made were not due to any fault of their own or out of vengeance, but from the need to streamline a more effective government. Members of the new council were a skillful mix of aristocracy and the meritocracy. Notably, most of the clergy were dismissed. This was to signal that while religion would be concerned, it would not dominate. 
In her first official meeting with her new council on the 29th of November, Elizabeth made her expectations clear. Quote, I give you this charge that you shall be of my privy council and content yourself to take pains for me in my realm. This judgment I have of you that you will not be corrupted with any manner of gift and that you will be favorable to the state and that without respect of my private will, you will give me that counsel that you think best. And if you shall know anything necessary to be declared to me of secrecy, you shall show it to myself only and assure yourself I will not fail to keep taciturnity therein, end quote. With that, her council was formed and instructed. There was still the matter of Queen Mary's funeral to conclude. It was decided to use King Henry VIII's funeral book as precedent for Mary's internment. They decided that her burial should be a traditional and lavish Catholic funeral. The Marquess of Winchester was responsible for the arrangements. Winchester had been the most senior of Queen Mary's counselors. He was a Catholic at heart, but definitely loyal to the new queen as well. His appointment was an excellent one. Unfortunately, the planning would not be as easy as he thought, since some of the nominated mourners refused to take part. Winchester had to throw a little weight and tell them that Queen Elizabeth was prepared to order their involvement. On the 21st of November, the Count of Feria reported that Mary's body had been removed to lie in state in the chamber outside the one she had slept in at St. James Palace prior to her death. Elizabeth finally left Hatfield on the 23rd in a procession that was a thousand strong. After a five-day stop at the Charter House, Elizabeth finally arrived and made her entry as Queen into London. At the head of her procession rode her escort of lords and gentlemen who were followed by the royal party. Elizabeth was preceded by the Earl of Pembroke, who was holding the symbol of the sovereign power, the upright sword. The sergeants at arms rode on either side of the queen, while Robert Dudley was immediately behind her. Wearing the traditional color of royalty, Elizabeth was covered from head to toe in purple velvet and looked the part that she had been born to inherit. She was queen. As was customary, the procession led Elizabeth to the Tower of London, where she took possession of it and spent the night before continuing her procession to Westminster. Unfortunately for Lady Jane Grey, she had planned to stay there until her coronation, but she would never have been crowned and became a prisoner instead. One does wonder if Elizabeth remembered her days spent under her sister's rule only four years ago in the Tower and the unfortunate ending of her cousin Lady Jane Grey. For six days, Elizabeth conducted her business from the Tower. On the 5th of December, she left the Tower by water on her way to Westminster, but she first stopped at her residence of Somerset House. She stayed there until Christmas Eve. On the 10th of December, a processing of lords, ladies, and officers of her household entered the chamber where Mary had been lying in state and carried her to the Chapel Royal at St. James. There at the altar, Mary's body lay for three more days until the 13th when the funeral finally began. A month after her death, Queen Mary was finally laid to rest at Westminster Abbey, and the heralds cried, The Queen is dead! Long live the Queen! Elizabeth's coronation day was chosen by astrologer Dr. John Dee as the 15th of January. It was believed that the day would be advantageous for a coronation. Three days prior to her coronation, Elizabeth returned to the Tower of London to prepare herself for the eve of coronation procession. 
On the 14th, she left the tower at about 3 in the afternoon and was carried in a litter that was covered in yellow cloth of gold, which was lined with white satin. It was open on every side. If you're trying to picture this in your head and you've watched Showtime's The Tudors, think back to Anne Boleyn's coronation procession in her litter. This would have looked similar to that. Along her procession, there were five pageants. This series of pageants were deliberately dancing on the grave of Queen Mary, and Elizabeth danced with the best. The first pageant was about Elizabeth's genealogy and showed that Elizabeth would bring peace to strife-torn England. The second pageant showed Elizabeth's government upheld by four virtues, true religion, love of subjects, wisdom, and justice. The third pageant was the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. These were applied to Elizabeth's suffering under Queen Mary. The fourth pageant represented time that depicted a decayed commonwealth under Queen Mary and a flourishing commonwealth with Queen Elizabeth. The fifth pageant depicted Elizabeth as Deborah, the prophetess who rescued Israel from Jabin, the king of Canaan, and then ruled over the Jews for 40 years. This, of course, looked back at Queen Mary's disastrous parliaments later in her rule. The day of her coronation, the ceremonies began in Westminster Hall and then carried on to the Abbey. Elizabeth wore her crimson Parliament robes and entered on a blue cloth or rug, which had lined the entire route from the hall to the Abbey. After onlookers witnessed their new queen, they quickly ran to take pieces of the cloth as souvenirs. At the ceremony, there were three crowns successfully placed on her head, which was followed by great fanfare after each. Elizabeth was dressed in gold from head to toe, and with the imperial crown on her head, she was led to her throne. After more ceremony ensued, Elizabeth withdrew to her closet and donned her purple robes, after which she headed back to Westminster Hall for her coronation dinner, still carrying her orb and scepter while wearing the heavy imperial crown. Elizabeth is reported as having had a huge smile while she gladly greeted the thousands of subjects who came to congratulate her. That's where we'll end for this week. Next time, I'm hoping to discuss Elizabeth's ladies and her marriage prospects. But I never know where my research will lead me most weeks, so we'll have to wait and see. Thank you so much for taking this journey with me through history. Until next time.